You are now listening to the Add 10 Gallons Concrete Podcast. Wait, the answer was Add 10 Gallons? Add 10 Gallons. My first thought was, we got to put Axe Chill in there. Yeah, great. <laughs> <laughs> Trucks on the way. On the way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay. I've got two observations, uh, neither of which are really educated or well thought out. <laughs> which are like most of my observations are. There aren't a lot of problems on a job site that can't be solved with a sack full of biscuits. Today's episode of the Add 10 Gallons Concrete Podcast is brought to you by Actigel 208. Actigel 208 is a high-performance additive for the concrete industry that is greatly beneficial to the producer. It enables them to increase the percentage of manufactured sand by up to 100% and completely replace all the natural sand in the mix. In areas where natural sand is scarce, inconsistent, and expensive, this provides a huge benefit to any ready-mix company out there. Benefits of manufactured sand and concrete include consistent air content, improved compaction, and increased density. Now in the past, the downside of using manufactured sands was that they were hard to pump, hard to place, and hard to finish. Well, Actigel 208 solves all those issues. By improving suspension, stability, and the quality of the cement paste in the mix, Actigel overcomes the old issues with manufactured sand and leaves them behind. Let Actigel 208 improve the quality of your mix while saving money on every yard you produce. For more information, visit us at actigel.com. That's A-C-T-I-G-E-L dot com. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of the Add 10 Gallons Concrete Podcast. We appreciate you being with us. As always, I'm joined by Paul and Joey. Paul, what's going on? What's up, brother man? Just another day. Another day bringing the people more concrete-related content. We're on a nice little streak here. We're almost holding up our end of the bargain, trying to get two or three episodes out per month. So uh, the month of May... It's looking pretty good. This is probably going to be published in the beginning of June, but still counts in my book. Joey Bell, what's up, man? Good. Yeah, we are staying pretty consistent here. It kind of goes in waves with us because it's going to crank up and uh, we're going to be gone for another month before too long, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, it is feast or famine for sure. I mean, it's like anything, right? It's, it's like that in airports. It's like that in restaurants it's like that in, in most places you get a, a wave of people and then it's kind of dead for a while so why should the podcast be any different right but you know there, there's no shortage of news out there that we need to get to before we get to our guest our, our guest is greg witz from the witz education a little backstory on him uh, our company active minerals actually utilizes his company services to increase and improve our communication with one another, but also with the people that we service and, and our prospects um, and people that we come in contact with on a bit on the business side of things. But as we'll get into in the podcast, I mean, improving your communication and being a better communicator, it helps you in all aspects of your life. And I'm really looking forward to getting into that. But first, we're bringing you the news like only the Ad 10 guys can. It's recurring, but we've talked about the Surfside Florida condo site uh, many times in the past, and we'll continue to do so as long as they keep doing things to stay in the news. And Paul, tell the people what they need to know about the condo site. <laughs> well, there's two two big things out there. Uh, one is, oh, and by the way, uh, first thing I noticed when I read this article is I didn't know this answer. Do you know how many people passed away during this event? Do you know what the number is? I want to say it's in the 90s. Yeah, 98. Yeah. Wow, I had no idea it was that many people. And that's just, 
absolutely heartbreaking. And a little bit of good news to come out of such a horrible situation is they've reached a settlement. There is a settlement on the books. $997 million will compensate the victims of this tragedy. And the interesting thing is, uh, while it still you know needs final approval from the insurance companies uh, and the developers and, and the civil contractors and stuff, the interesting thing is this is literally more than 10 times the amount of what was originally approved in the circuit court. So these people went to the circuit court and were looking for compensation and the judge approved an $83 million settlement. Uh, and, but then when it all went through the full appeal and full process, uh, they were awarded almost a billion dollars for this. And that's just, uh, I mean, a staggering number, but, you know, glad to see that these people be compensated. I mean, you can never bring somebody's mother back, but you know, at least you're going to be, uh, fairly compensated that you can move on with your life as best as possible. Yeah, no, that is, that's a tough question though, right? When it, when it comes to monetary compensation to make up for a loss that you really can't put a price tag on, right? You come to somebody after a tragedy like that and you ask them, you know, how, what are you seeking? Like what would make this better? Not good, you know, not go away, but like what would just make this situation better? It's a tough question. It's a tough question to answer. Yeah, you guys are right. You don't, you can't replace, you know, a life. But if somebody's a primary breadwinner in the house and you still got a mortgage to pay, you pay off the house, you pay off any other debt you got, and, you know, you're living debt free after that, you know, that stuff goes a long way. Yeah, definitely. But also, I mean, aside from the settlement, they're actually working on selling the property. Uh, it, the sale hasn't gone through yet, but they do have a buyer lined up for, being shown for this property. And it's interesting. It's something I, I wanted to get into with you guys here. The potential buyer is a Dubai-based luxury real estate mogul. <laughs> He's been called the Donald Trump of the Middle East. So I don't know if that's good or bad, <laughs> maybe a little bit of both. <laughs> but, <laughs> but the gentleman's name is uh, Hussein Sawani. He is the CEO and owner of DMAC Properties, D-A-M-A-C Properties, uh, and he put a bid in for $120 million. Right now, there's no competing bids, but it was appraised at under $90 million just before this collapse happened, you know, just before this, this event took place. What do you guys make of that? Is, is that the, the booming Florida real estate market where... You really can't go wrong down there, or do you think that's because of the situation and, and story behind this property? This story. I mean, it's, it's a toxic property. Who wants to be involved with uh, the same property that collapsed everything? And, you know, I was reading, uh, reading up on this, and there's a story from the Miami Herald that's saying this guy, you know, they're calling him the Donald Trump of the Middle East, but he really has worked with Trump to build Trump-branded golf courses out in Dubai, you know. So this guy, if he's really as smart as he's acting like he is, you know, he must be seeing something, right? To purchase this beachfront property, it's a couple acres, $120 million. Uh, looks like they're going to raise the current building, uh, but the foundations that are there may still be uh, good that this building was sitting on. They may just rebuild what's there. They could dig the whole thing out, who knows? Uh, but he says he's going to go in, he's going to build, you know, more uh, luxury high rises, the interesting thing is like earlier, I told you the settlement was 
for these victims is like almost a billion dollars, but before it was less than a hundred million. And you mentioned that proceeds of this sale were going to go to the victims that about $33 million of the, of those proceeds are going to the victims. Uh, the other 50 million they were going to get was from the insurance companies. And now that total obviously has been revised to almost a billion, but it is interesting. This guy came in and, you know, pay, wants to pay 120 million for this stuff. That's going to be an absolute, uh, that's an absolute insane amount of money for what right now is you know, toxic branding, right? I mean, who, who are you going to get to move into the, oh yeah, this is, <laughs> this is the rebuilt building that collapsed, you know, just recently. I mean, that's, I don't know, man, that's a, that's a scary thing to try and dive into. There are some obstacles. There's going to be some obstacles when you start digging out that foundation and you start running excavation around the property because, you know, they might come into all kinds of things. There might be toxic soil. Uh, you know, you know, you did mention that it's a toxic property. No, no pun intended. There might actually be some some contaminants in the soil from the building. And there also might be human remains. I mean, that's something that they had to to go through when they were rebuilding the property around the World Trade Center. They mentioned that in the construction dive article that I was reading um, and had a lot of this information in, you know, they compare it to that. Whereas if you do uncover some human remains, you need to get a coroner in there. You need to remove those, those remains humanely and properly, and then you need to figure out what to do with it. I'm sure he'll get some pushback from families of the dead, maybe wanting this property to be more of a memorial maybe not so much a luxury high rise where, where, you know, these condos used to sit. So what's interesting to me is uh, the reporting that was done on this uh, from the Miami Herald did a pretty good job on their reporting. Um, there were 225 people downloaded the offering memorandum, uh, but there were actually about a half a dozen people that were actively talking about uh, jumping in on this. But when it, Eventually, it was getting set for auction. Only one person put in a, a preemptive bid, and that was this guy from Dubai. So, uh, when it was well over the valuation, you know, they just went ahead and took the offer and didn't go to auction. So, you're asking, like, why was it so high? Why was it overvalued? Well, it might have been just to keep any other bidders out and potentially getting into a bidding war. So, they accepted that offer ahead of the auction. Uh, I did see other reporting on this, uh, places like the New York Times and stuff, talking about the 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 new the new buy and my absolute favorite thing in the world is when uh, you like read news articles and they've interviewed people that have no idea what they're talking about mm. and so like the New York Times interviews this guy who's like a lawyer and he's like what do you think about you know somebody actually trying to develop on this site you know and he goes well well these people are are dumb are you, can you believe uh, they're going to build on a site that collapsed like don't they know that that you're building on sand and the sand is constantly being attacked by the ocean and it's all going to be gone soon. Climate change. (laughs) It's just just like, all right, number one, we've been building things on sand and on beaches for, you know, forever. And you think we don't know how to build in sandy soil. And then number two, the guys from Dubai, (laughs) the whole thing is man-made. On sand, like <laughs> this is what he does. <laughs> they, they, what? Where's the irony in there, right? Like the guys from a place where they literally built an entire palm tree shaped island and then threw up high rises and stuff on it. And then, meanwhile, the guy, the lawyer guy from the New York Times, and I'm 
completely uh, theorizing here. This is, I don't know if this is true or not, but I picture this lawyer guy that the New York Times went to for a statement. He's probably in some high rise apartment in New York City, which is literally built on a trash pile. So, <laughs> and so is parts of Boston. So is all these other like coastal Northeastern, huge expensive cities that, that these people live in. And I love how they had to throw climate change in there. Um, but my eight hat tip, hat tip to construction dive. What did they do? They went and talked to a Virginia tech engineer, uh, about what to do about renovating the site and building on it. Meanwhile, you got our prestigious institutions such as the New York times going to some lawyer that doesn't know his ass from a hole in the ground. So <laughs> if, if that's not a microcosm of how the media is run nowadays, then, uh, you know, I don't know what is. Well, they did, you know, they did, they did interview like somebody that knew what they were talking about. And they were like, oh, yeah, I wonder if they'll, that guy was like, oh, I wonder if they'll use any of the existing structure or just build around it. And then they cut to that lawyer who was like, I can't believe they, they build anything on a beach. They must be out of their mind. This might be a little bit of a tangent, but it's a cool story. So I was in Boston a couple summers ago. It was pre-COVID, just being a tourist. And uh, I took one of those tours, right, where they stop off at like 20 different sites around the city. And, and the tour guide, as we were going through a section of Boston, he mentioned that the foundation of the entire of a section of this entire city, what it was built on was literally hundreds of thousands of telephone poles, you know, drove into the ground. And he said that they have to manually adjust and maintain the water table because if these poles dry out, they can break and the whole city will collapse in on itself. So they need to keep these poles actually like somewhat saturated and the water table needs to maintain a certain level. Otherwise, they'll actually have earthquakes in a way where, where the buildings will like collapse and fall in on themselves. And it's happened one other time in like the 60s or, or early 70s. It's actually happened where these these poles dried out too much and there was a foundation issue and you had an entire city block that just like fell into a sinkhole but don't build on sand guys <laughs> especially not with concrete since we've been doing it for years that's wild man well hey let's switch gears for a second talk about this what i feel like we talk about almost every episode now is the concrete additive business there is big news coming out of there again so we talked about this before you know um Sika, uh, agreed to buy master builders and you know as, as things keep getting bought and sold they're consolidating like crazy we're gonna have like two additive companies left well in a lot of parts of the u.s your choices were Sika or master builders so they've actually run into an antitrust issue and they are being forced to sell off part of their business so what's interesting to me about this is instead of saying like no you can't buy all of the master builders product suites in the US. Instead, they're selling the Sika additive division in the US. I, that, I mean, that in order to complete the sale, it's it's absolutely uh, blowing my mind. I would have thought that was like incredibly valuable. And you would have just said, OK, I'll take some of the master builder stuff. I'll, I'll take it all globally, but we'll sell off some of the US parts you know, where necessary. But nope deciding they're going to sell the entire Sika uh, business uh, of U.S. admixtures. And right now, the number one and number two people bidding for that, Wholesome and Heidelberg Cement. 
So interesting news that the additive businesses, the number one, number two bidders right now are the largest cement manufacturers in the world. Uh, the, uh, the number three guy right now coming in is a Turkish conglomerate and uh, they're interested report is they're bidding up to a billion dollars the turkish guys have put in a bit of a billion dollars we don't know uh, what the actual numbers are that's just kind of word on the street uh, i'll say word on the street is coming from bloomberg if anybody wants to go look it up but uh their turkish guys are saying you know they put in an offer up to a, a billion dollars uh, but it's not being disclosed right now they are in the second round of bidding it is confirmed that those three companies wholesome Heidelberg and these Turkish fellas, uh, they're all in the second round of bidding, trying to pick up the seek of business. I think in our last episode, Joey Bell even brought it up. I mean, he hit the nail on the head. He was like, at, at what point is there going to be antitrust issues? At what point are you going to have a, a monopoly type situation? Yeah. Well, you know, you got to, if you had to put money on it, if there was a prop bet for who you think wins out of those three, my money's going to wholesome. I think they got, uh, I think there's two things running in their favor. They got cash to burn and who their CEO is. So Wholesome is selling like $10 billion worth of assets in India uh, to somebody. And they also have a CEO right now who was hired away from Sika in 2017 to become the CEO of Wholesome. So if anybody's going to know that Sika business, it's going to be that fella and, uh, and with cash to burn and looking to divest into other things. I'd have to put my money on wholesome as potentially being the winner there. Yeah. You're getting, you're not going to get an argument from me there. That's pretty solid, pretty solid thinking. It's just, it goes to illustrate how incestual this business is, this whole entire industry, man. It's, uh, it, it's, I mean, I guess it's not a bad thing, but in a way it, it kind of makes me think that it's, it's so hard to pull in, talent from other industries you know what i mean i mean your, your concrete people stay concrete people and very rarely do you get a concrete expert or your an executive or high level executive from concrete related businesses very rarely do you pull people in from other aspects into that industry it's it's very much a self-promoted industry but um you know at what point do we run out of talent yeah, and there's so many industries like that that we've seen just in our travels or whatever. And I even just thought about uh, even farming. You know, I remember growing up, uh, my dad was a full-time farmer, and there were literally dozens of farmers, like in a county. And nowadays, you may have just two or three, you know, five, maybe a handful of guys that are farming that same land. You know, they're they're le they're leasing up and buying up land. So even farming, it's just gone from, you know, your local mom and pop family farm to, you know, you're farming tens of thousands of acres. Uh, and one that's one operation. It's just times are just changing and we're just seeing it more and more in, in concrete and agriculture and almost any kind of industrial industry. They're just consolidating. Yeah, man, that's, that's what you gotta that's what you gotta do to survive anymore because the you know, I would imagine in most industries the profit margins and the uh the the gross revenues aren't getting any bigger. Well it is interesting living here in Pennsylvania. Um I don't I don't know how it is uh where you guys are exactly, but 
here in Pennsylvania, there's a lot of independent quarries and a lot of independent concrete pro, uh, producers. So, you know, you ride around and you don't have like as many of the big multinationals running a game here in the state of Pennsylvania. So when I'm here and looking at things on a state level, it's, it's pretty impressive how many companies there are that are, you know, successful and you know, providing paychecks for their employees month in and month out. Uh, but they're not, you know, owned by some massive conglomerate based in Switzerland or something. Yeah, for sure. Wonder, wonder why that is. I've I've noticed the same thing as well. Um, way more so in like Pennsylvania, Western Maryland area. That you know, up and down that eighty-one corridor, you do have way more of the I would say smaller yet you know relatively successful. Um, independently or private owned quarries and concrete companies and things like that. Whereas down in the Southeast or, you know, uh, you know, Texas area, or, and, and even as you go further West, that seems to be less and less common. I wonder why it's regional like that. Yeah, I have no, I really have no idea, but I know here in Pennsylvania, that a lot of pride in the state, which was interesting because, you know, we come from the South and uh, there's a lot of pride when you're down south, I mean, you think really think of Texas you know, first when you think of that, right? They oh, think yeah. of themselves as, as Texans first and United States citizens second. You know, coming from Alabama, you almost felt like an underdog. Like everybody always looked at you like you're a little bit dumb. And, uh, and I can hear some people in the background uh, yelling, row tide, you know, just trying to make fun <laughs> of us right now. But, you know, hey, look, man, I, I graduated high school with a full set of teeth and I know math. So, you know, I was. <laughs> top of the food chain coming out of the <laughs> coming out of the heart of Dixie there. But, you know, you kind of had a little chip on your shoulder mentally, like, you know, coming from the South. So you, but that also instilled a little bit of pride, right? Like, no, like we're, you know, we're worthy too, just because uh, our obesity rates are horrible and, you know, our <laughs> academic rates are in the toilet. Doesn't mean we're not good people in a good place to live. And you, you come up North and you, you know, it's a lot of the same people. Pennsylvania is an incredible state that it really is. Uh, James Carville, the uh, pol Democrat politician, uh, famously said that you know you got Philadelphia on one side, Pittsburgh on the other, and you got Alabama in the middle, and uh, or Kentucky in the middle, however. <laughs> and it really is. It, or I think he said Alabama in the middle, but up here they call it Pennsylvania. But <laughs> it really is incredible. This state really is very interesting. And I think I think there's a lot of pride here in this state. So you got a lot of multi-generational business owners and these families grow up with a lot of pride and, you know they're not they're not gonna kind of reminds me of being in the south right i'm not selling selling this property to you know some guy i don't know so some accountant can come in here and rip everything out and fire all these people and they, they, we'll build it ourselves and i just think i think you got a lot of that going on here i wonder if it's uh yeah. no, that's good to hear i can confirm that i've seen it i wonder if it's got anything to do with unions you know that's big union country up there in the Northeast. And I don't know. I have no idea how it would be related, but it almost sounds like there's kind of a, there's kind of a fine line, you know, that Mason Dixon line, like when you get out, uh, get out of the South and you get up in that Northeast, it's union country. I would, I wonder if that has anything to do with it. I don't know. The union, the only time I've run into the unions is in Philadelphia. And once you get outside of Philadelphia, I mean, good luck finding a, a you know, concrete related mm -hmm. union, 
you know, not, it, it doesn't really happen that much. And that was part of why, like when uh, this current administration in the White House got the bipartisan infrastructure bill passed, one of the provisions they snuck in there was that like all the jobs had to be union. If you want the federal dollars, it has to, you have to be working with the union. And the response to that, it was a response letter to that. And it was led by people here in Pennsylvania that actually drafted that memo back to the, uh, the administration and said, no, like, Hey man, it was such a well done letter because it, although it was disagreed, it disagreed respectfully. It was full of factual information. It said, look, like this is really going to put a burden on the taxpayers and here's why it's going to burden the taxpayer. And it went through the fact that like, you're not going to be able to find unions. All this stuff. Like we're, we're doing projects like in Tennessee or in Pennsylvania, like how many roads are rural out there and you're going to have to get union contracts. There's not even enough of them. So it was, uh, it was really well done. So, you know, maybe in Philadelphia, there could be some union things going on is, and as you bleed over into New Jersey, but for the most part, Pennsylvania, man, it's, uh, it's just a lot of pride, I think. Yeah. I think God's pride. I think there's a lot of family, family businesses. And sometimes you get the case with family businesses that the son or grandson is a, is an idiot and just runs off. But I've seen a lot of situations here in Pennsylvania is working in like the, the, the organizations here that the second and third generations are as sharp as ever. And they've, they built things out and acquired their competitor, their local competitors that, you know, maybe had that second or third generation idiot that ran the, ran the business off the track and they went and scooped them up and kept these big multinationals out of here. Yeah. I see it in the uh, Midwest too, like Missouri. I remember going around uh, Missouri, Iowa, uh, Minnesota, that whole Midwest, upper Midwest region. You see a lot more mom and pops out there. So I don't, I don't know what the correlation might be. Uh, once you get out of the Southeast. The Midwest correlates to the Western side of Pennsylvania anyway, because Pittsburgh's a part of the Midwest and no one can convince me otherwise. I mean, once you get out there towards Pittsburgh, they call soda pop and they even have a little funny accent, but the culture is very much a Midwestern culture and it's a complete 180 from the culture you have in Philadelphia. And it's, that's interesting that you have two totally opposite ends of the spectrum in, in culture and, and their surroundings and, and whatnot in, in Pennsylvania it really makes the state really cool. But yeah, my, my point being Pittsburgh is the Midwest. You can fight me in the comments on that one. <laughs> <laughs> well, what I always thought was interesting was how many people like in the, in Ohio kind of related with Pittsburgh's pro sports. Yeah. I didn't, I never would have thought of that. Cause I mean, they're t- talking about another state that's, Full of pride for no reason, Ohio. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we could start talking about Buckeye fans, but we shouldn't. <laughs> no, I'm just, I'm just teasing. I'm just hoping the people we know that root for the Buckeyes hear this and know that I, I think very little of them. <laughs> I mean, their team, their team, not like our friends. I think highly of our friends. We understand that sometimes you can be a victim of your environment growing up, and that's okay. You know, <laughs> I'm a Cowboys fan for God's sake, and I don't want to be, but I can't jump off the bandwagon now. The 90s were too good for me. I can't jump ship. <laughs> the 90s. As bad as I want to. Oh, uh, did I tell you? I may have even already mentioned it on this podcast before, but 
uh, you know, my daughter is going to be an Eagles fan now because of the proximity we live to Philadelphia. She's going to be an Eagles fan. And uh, I can live with that, uh, but I could never let her be a Philadelphia Phillies fan. And I just absolutely loved it. Like, took her to McDonald's and, like, on the sign at the McDonald's here, it had, like, a Phillies branded, like, Happy Meal box or whatever. It's like, Dad, the worst team in the world is on the Happy Meal box. What are we going to do? We can't get that. Parenting 101, ladies and gentlemen. I was I like, that, taking notes. that's right, baby. We're going to get you a number seven combo today. Welcome to the big league. <laughs> Heck yeah, that's awesome. You know, speaking of second and third generation kids from business owners, you got one of two options, right? You can, or one of two options when you join the family business, uh, you know, you can disregard it and take it for granted and then, you know, inadvertently run it into the ground, or you can take it, uh, lift it up, put a little modern spin on it, utilize technology and what you know growing up in this day and time and you can make that business a, a better thriving business and uh, fortunately for us we have greg wits on the program here and that's precisely what he did with the wits education program that they have spoke a little bit here at the top of the show about greg and his company but i kind of stole the show there and got a little bit long-winded guys so before we, we get into greg if you want to go ahead and touch on you know what you learned from his program how it's helped you a little bit and and, um, you know, kind of talk up his services here before we get him on the program. Well, the one thing that I want the listeners of our program to know is that the number one thing I kind of took away from Greg is the philosophical discussions that we had and, and talking about the philosophy of people and in the, not just the communication, but how are they thinking? How are we thinking? How are we reacting to our thoughts and and, inter, and then interacting with people in the world? And those types of discussions, whether uh, it's happening in, in books or on the Joe Rogan podcast or Jordan Peterson podcast, like the, the, the human psyche is an interesting thing. And we're bringing that discussion into the sales and concrete side of the world so i hope if uh, people listen to our program if they're interested in that at all that i think they'll appreciate the discussion we're going to have with greg today yeah i really enjoyed the um that first class that we did with him that was by far my favorite and i remember after that i i remember talking to paul about it and i i even reached out to greg afterwards and i told him i was like there's not many seminars that i can sit through all day and still enjoy uh enjoy it at the end of the day and almost wish that it had lasted longer. That was that first day for me. Uh, but what I really enjoyed was just learning about the different personalities. Like when you go into, you know, it doesn't matter the situation. Like like a uh, like a customer's uh, office in our case, you can pretty much tell within the first few minutes like what kind of person uh, that is or is going to be, and how you you're going to anticipate them to react to what it is that you have to say. And then you just take that information. Now that you know that you you have more chips in your pile, you know when you know more about the cards that they're holding, that's nothing but an advantage for you. And you can help steer the conversation after that. So if they come off as uh, you know very critical and nothing but numbers kind of you know uh, kind of person or just whatever, you know how to respond to that and how to bring that down to that middle ground where decisions can be made and progress can be made. So that's what I really enjoyed about it. And, and I like understanding what my weaknesses are so I can get better at them. 
And sometimes, you know, as Josh, as Josh likes to say, you don't know what you don't know. And so if I may not even realize that something's a weakness until it's been exposed to me, that, hey, this way. And so when I am confronted with that and then taught, like, here's how you recognize it and here's how you overcome it. I mean, those, those are big things for me. And, and so in my work life, I, you know, we're strong technically and concrete, but I was weaker on the business side. And, you know, in the last year was really put into a position where I had to be on point with all the numbers, how to analyze the numbers, how to present the numbers, and then make business cases for our group so that we could expand and thrive. And so that was all really new, but I, I'd liked it, but I didn't even realize how weak I was in it until I was exposed to it. And in this situation with Greg Witts, uh, what I ended up being labeled as was a spontaneous child, which sounds horrible, but what it really means is that like you cope with humor. <laughs> so when I'm in a situation that could be a serious conversation, uh, I would have a tendency to break into making a joke and laughing and wanting to always bring it back to laughter and everybody being happy. But that may not be the right emotional state for that conversation. And it doesn't even mean that the conversation has to be a negative conversation. What you should be, though, is approaching someone as an adult and not as this quote unquote spontaneous child and trying to make jokes when we're in a business setting and trying to get get a deal hammered out. So it was interesting for me to be exposed. Like, wow, I do do that. I do make jokes and say things at times where like, well, maybe that wasn't really necessary and we could have kept this conversation going adult to adult and I have to make sure I keep myself in the proper frame of mind. And it's not about being robotic or anything like that. You just want to make sure you're not being an idiot <laughs> when you're talking to people. Well, look at that. See, I just made another joke. Did you see that? We were having a serious conversation. I was telling you about being an adult and then I broke into a dumb joke and laughed at it. See, look, I'm working on it. Anyway, <laughs> whatever. Yes. We bring the conversation back and relate it directly to concrete. But at the end of the day, man, I mean, if you can, if you can communicate better, if you're, if you can increase your self-awareness, it's only going to make you a better person. And that's going to bleed over into your personal life, uh, not just your professional life. And it, it's something that, you know, everyone could benefit from in one way, shape or form. So, um, you know, that's, that's enough of us talking. Uh, Greg is a fantastic presenter and communicator himself as you know, you would expect him to be. So without any further ado, we're going to get into this interview here with Greg. Looking forward to it. Hope you all enjoy. All right, here we go. Greg Witz is joining us. Thank you, sir. I really appreciate you being here. I really appreciate you inviting me. Although I might say it was a little bit of a self-invitation because I called you and said, I want to be on your show. <laughs> okay, that's a little bit true. But we're happy to have you here. Happy to introduce you to the concrete world. And look, before we get into this, because I'm really concerned we're going to get a bunch of like uh, abbreviations and acronyms, all kind of stuff that nobody's going to understand. So I'm going to try and keep away from that. But before we get diving right into it, could you tell the people what it is that you do? For sure. So traditionally, we are a training and development company that does a lot of work with leadership teams, sales teams, uh, service teams, uh, and of course, um, managers and supervisors. And what we try to do is we try to do a lot of development uh, along the line of interpersonal skills. So when people are coming through some of our training programs or executive coaching, what we're really trying to do is work different areas like communication skills or emotional intelligence or assertiveness 
And one of the things that we believe are these are the types of, call it lessons and skill sets that we should be developing because they're going to help us in all aspects of our role. You know, when it comes down to us working together and collaborating together as a team, being able to effectively communicate and manage interactions and relationships is, is it an important thing. I think if you think about what separates high performing teams versus, versus low performing teams, a lot of that has to do with trust. And trust is built over time. And we might acknowledge that trust is an outcome. So how we're showing up in these relationships and how we're managing situations and interacting and communicating and behaving is the thing, call it the, the, the currency, that ends, up with, that ends up allowing me to have trust. And, you know, I think, you know, we've spent some time together, guys, where one of the things that I, that I talk a lot about uh, in regard to the work that we do is the importance of us being able to lean into the world of psychology to develop things like self-awareness and understanding people and relationships because as fathers, as spouses, as, as, as team members, it's a really important, important aspect. Let's lean into the world of neuroscience that says, guess what? We can change. We don't have to be like our parents. We don't have to be the things that we've experienced along the way. I can change the way I communicate, behave, act, respond. I could do this, right? It's not warm, fuzzy stuff. It's actually built into science. And if I could do those two things, then it becomes my responsibility to learn and continually learn. So I'm always showing up to be what we call a better human the next day, whether that be in our sales and leadership roles or whether that be in our you know, personal lives like family. Yeah, but no first grader comes to school and says, you know what I want to be when I grow up? I want to psychoanalyze strangers and tell them how to talk to strangers, other strangers, oh, and the people they work with uh, better than they do now. So how on earth did you find yourself doing this job? It's a, it's a great question. You're right. No one, no one grows up saying, I want to go psychoanalyze people and I want to understand, you know, personality more. Okay, so let's let's break this down. So I, I might be defined as an extroverted personality, right? I get my energy from people. I'm always around people. People were always my thing. And, you know, I can remember at a very young age always being good when it came down to navigating the world of people, right? Whether it be a teacher or a friend or a situation, right? Fast forward this. This was not my chosen profession. I had gone off. At this point, uh, actually, here's the full story. I dropped out of high school, and I went and I took off to Club Med, and I went to go work in Club Med. And me and my buddy, and this was the, this was like the dream. There was there was like we're gonna go, we're gonna go live on the beach, we're gonna like drink coconuts, we're gonna like coach volleyball, we're gonna we're gonna <laughs> dance in the sun, and we're gonna work at Club Med. And my cousin was working at Club Med, and that's how we ended up getting in. So we drop out of high school, and we're like, what are we going to do? Because we know we got to leave, right? Uh, I think parents are going to, like, beat both of us if we, don't, if we don't do something. So we take off to Club Med. And this is like a two-year experience. Back and forth, flying around the world, very specifically the Caribbean, and doing entertainment and kids' club and all that kind of good stuff. And I had come home after one contract, and I'll never forget this conversation. My mother says to me, all right, what are you doing with your life? And I said, what do you mean? She says, well, you have two choices, right? Go to school, right? Or get a job. And I was like, well, if I get paid, I'll go get a job. And she said, perfect. Until you have a job, you have to work at your father's company, which at the time was called the Personal Development Institute. And that's what WITS is today. I did not want to do this because my father and I did not have a very good relationship. In fact, it was quite fractured. And, you know, in a lot of cases, I might say, 
the only reason we ended up having a relationship later on in life was through the business because that was the connection that we ended up having. But up until then, it was oil and water, even though in a lot of cases you might argue we were quite similar. And I'm like, there's no way, absolutely no way I am walking into that lion's den. Like, this is suicide. This is going to be one of the most negative, worst experiences. I know this man. This man is going to beat me every day. Somehow, some way, this is punishment. And she said, look, again, you sign up for school, you get a job, and until those two things happen, this is where you go and work. I know I'm not allowed to swear on the show, so I'll leave out the, the next parts, but I walked in and I'll never forget what he said to me. He said, listen, the only reason you are here is because of your mother. I don't want you here. I don't want to see you. I don't want you in the business. You just, just stay out of my way. And back then the job was real sort of basic admin, licking envelopes, folding brochures, all that kind of stuff. So I'm doing this resentful, half-assed. It's not real motivating. I'm real close with the receptionist and a few of the other admin people, but that's about it. And one day I see the sales team and the sales team look like they're having a good time. They're always meeting people and they're always talking with each other and they're always smiling and high-fiving. And I'm looking down the hall and I'm thinking like, wow, that looks, that looks like an interesting kind of job, right? Like these guys look like they're having a lot of fun all day. So I walked up and I said, listen, you know, I said to my father at the time, I said, I know it's been a little bit of a rough ride, but like I'm kind of doing nothing here and I'm, can I get into sales? I'd like to do sales. I think sales are going to be really good. And I'll never forget what he said to me. Again, you might have to bleep, 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 bleep. But without all of that, he looked at me and said, there's no way you were doing sales because there's no way I'd put you in front of a client. I said, okay. And we're very disappointed. Um, this must have been a couple days later. I was standing in the office, one of those things, right place, right time. Someone walked in and they said, hi, I'm here to talk more about some of the training. I said, yes, come with me. Let's go sit down in the office. I sat down in the office and as I sat there, I see the shadow walk by the window. I'm like, oh no. Right? And then I see this physical presence come by the window again. I'm like, oh no. Now this whole time, and guys, you're in sales, so you know, like you got to stay focused, right? You got to like, you know, be present. You're, you're in your pitch. You're doing your thing. Like, this is my first thing. I've never been taught this. I'm just, I'm doing it. I'm doing it. I'm doing it. And I look out the corner of my eye and in the little window next to the door, I see this body with the finger pointing at me. And for the audience, you can't see I'm pointing right in the camera right now. But I'm pointing and he's come here with the, come here finger, right? Like you better come over here and get out of that office right now, which I completely ignored, went through the process, closed the deal. I think this, this for sale was like two grand. And I rolled out. I was like, I did it. I closed the sale. He says, good. Tomorrow show up with a shirt and a tie and you're now in sales. And that was by the age, that was 21, 22. By the age of 22 and a half, 23, I was outperforming the entire sales group. My, my individual revenue each month was more than all than combined the entire sales team. And that's how it began for me. It began for me through what we might say adult learning, you know, experiential or experimenting. Let me just go in and play with it and do it and try it and use it. And that was the launch of the career. And it was a little bit of a similar story on how I got into facilitation and then how I got into coaching and then how I got into leading a business, which was it was just needed. And it was only after I was doing the work, I now went back to school. And I did a background in adult education, human behavior. And, you know, even then, I think I succeeded because I was interested in the topic versus versus anything else. Well, and 
sharing that story with uh, our audience, there's a lot of people in the construction business that are in the construction business because their father was in the construction business. Right, right. And there's also a lot of people who are in sales that never planned on being in sales. I mean, they went in, started in a QC lab, or they started out in the yard somewhere, or their family owned the business, and they were sweeping the floors when they got out of high school, and then they had a personality for it or enough of one, uh, and there you are trying to sell stuff. But then you probably see people like that every day, Greg. What do you do to identify uh, positive attributes and kind of mold that into somebody who is a better salesman through knowledge and practice? Okay, so let's start with the latter question, which is how do we mold people? And I, I literally just had this conversation this morning with one of my team members. I said, look, the only way I know how to do this is to work with you. Just come with me to meetings. Come with me to clients. Let's sit down, do proposals. Just if you work with me and if I show you what, if I, what I do and I show you how I think and I, sh and, I, and I loop you in, it is the best way I know how to train someone. Right? And I've tried it all. I've tried the, the you know, here's your role and your job description and go and, right? But for me, we might define that as mentorship. I don't officialize the word mentorship, but I, I think I take a very mentorship approach with my team, right? Um, and the difference between mentoring and coaching, by the way, is coaching in some cases is, is teaching them how to do it. Mentoring is they know how to do it. They just need to do it better, right? They need to, they need to get a little quicker and, and faster with that. So that's what, 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 what I do. What do I look for? Um, the first thing I look for is connection with someone. Like, do I, do I relate to you? Do I like you? Do I, do I see myself being with you? Do I do, are we going to, are we going to enjoy our time collaborating and working together? And this doesn't mean you hire people that you like. This means you hire people that, you know, have qualities and values that are similar to you. I think one of the mistakes that we tend to, or one of the things we don't spend enough time on is ensuring that as a group, we, we're aligned in our values. We're aligned in some of the, the, the goals that we have. We don't have to believe the same thing. We don't have to do the same thing, but there's got to be, be some, some overlap and some alignment. Like, for example, so values, right? Let's define values value of achievement and success you know i want to really make sure that we as a group are successful so my actions and my behaviors might lead to that the value might be if we're thinking about um others as supporting others making sure that others are succeeding okay cool well if you three aren't like that then there's a real mismatch and it doesn't matter how good you are in your job doesn't matter how much you have that experience with that resume what matters is is we're, we're going to miss it because at that point, we need to acknowledge the fact that our, our teams are our biggest communities right now, right? Our, uh, our, we spend more time in some cases with our teams. Well, at least we did before the pandemic. Right now, we're at home with our families. So it might be more balanced, right? But that's what I think I look for. I think um, I look for connection and shared values and alignment and goals attitude which is you know do we look at this in the same sort of way do we have the same sort of enthusiasm and energy to things and if we could get that then i can teach you to do any job i can teach you to sell i can teach you to lead i can teach you to be serviced you know and i've said this as well and in fact this is the one thing i look for and it's, it's not a question that i ask but 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 i think about it a lot which is regardless of your job are you the best at it or are you doing the best at it in other words, if you're a burger flipper, are you the best burger flipper in town? Do you make the best hamburger, right? And if not, 
Are you making the best hamburger you can? And if you're doing that, then we're going to be successful. Well, the coaching thing for me in high school was, what are you doing when nobody's looking? Yeah. And we've had to carry that into our roles here because we're not around other people. In fact, even our group is a little bit isolated. So it's, what are you going to do today based on your own integrity and your own initiative? And then you get to share that with the rest of the company. Look what we were able to do as a team. But both of you guys hit on something very interesting. Number one, Greg hit on principles and values. And I think if we all lived our lives with principles first, or whatever your first principles are, you can always draw back on that. So you can lean on that in your business life, in your personal finance life, in your relationships life at home and with your children. If you have first principles, you can always just relate everything back to that. And Josh hit on something interesting that uh, he described Joey Bell earlier as someone who just didn't realize that he was gifted at personality and relationship building and then went from being a farmer and a field worker in concrete to being in sales. Love that story of how you got started and started in sales. I mean, that's started in that's sales. Crazy. I'm not surprised. Yeah. And I'm not surprised with your personality that you were uh, really good at sales. There's you know, I think for me, for me, one of my insecurities has always been, do I know what I'm doing? Right. I think we all have a little bit of that sometimes. But for me, it was like, I've never sold and now let me just sell. I've never run a company. All right, well, let me just go and do that. Or, well, I've never hired someone or done an interview. Well, let me do that. And every single time I found myself in one of these situations, which were all of them, including, you know, a very important one, which was the financial management of the business, I ended up having to take it on because either no one else did it or it was broken or there was a problem with it. And at that point, I went, all right, well, you know, I got to go learn this. So let me go hire someone that can teach me financial management and how to run a P&L and what is a P&L, right? I'll never forget this. So my father passes 2011. So let's back up. So there's actually another story about uh, before this, but we'll start with it. When my father passes in 2011, he gets diagnosed with cancer. And I'll never forget, he came home and he says, I'm dying in 12 months from now. I said to him, you can't, you can't say that. You cannot let those words, you, you just can't, right? And interesting, just on a sidebar, I just interviewed someone in my podcast yesterday who survived two of the most rare, most unsurvivable cancers ever, all right? And has one lung, and is the only cancer survivor with one lung to climb Mount Everest and to, 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 to reach the summit, okay? Insane. Not only that, he's done the seven other summits, okay? He's, he's a brilliant, I'll, I'll send you his stuff after. Brilliant dude. But the entire time or the, 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 the whole message or the whole thing that got him through was mindset. And he said something, he said, Greg, you know, your mind will give up before your body will. Right? You're, you're, that's, that's what goes. And when my father passed and he looked at me that day, I knew that, that his mindset, he, he had given up. And what was even more freaky was 12 months to the day, he literally passed away. And it was then I now go and I open up the books, right? And I just see a red mess, looked like a murder scene. And I'll never forget, I looked at the bookkeeper. I'm like, what does this all mean? And she said, Greg, we have no money. We're out of money. 
I'm like, what do you mean we're out of money? She was like, well, there hasn't been good financial management in the business. Now, at this point, I'm really torn because the work we do is really significant, right? But the business side of it is completely failing, completely failing. And what do we do? Do we, do we take the debt on? Do I, do I take the debt on? Do, I, do we continue the business? What do, what do we do? And it all boiled back down to the work, which was, I, I believe the work is important enough. So then I went and I said, hired myself and they taught me, I hired myself a coach and they taught me how to read a P&L and have financial acumen and really sort of be more, more, more intelligent about money. And it's, you know, what was sad about that story, but it's a very true, true thing that I think becomes an important point for all of us was I was 32, 33 years old by the first time I had learned money. I hadn't learned money before that. And if you look at what we're teaching to kids in high school today, right? One of the main things we should be teaching, even younger, junior high, financial literacy, entrepreneurship, right? Leadership, right? Service. These are going to be important things to teach. Yeah, we agree. There's some states that are requiring financial literacy classes, personal finance classes. Now, uh, in 2022, you know, legislation is finally getting put in place that in order to graduate high school, mm-hmm. you know, you got to be able to balance a checkbook. Got to understand credits and debits going into Smart. your account. Got to understand what loans are, what interest rates are, credit cards, and how that affects your life. Mm-hmm. I mean, I can't believe nobody ever taught us that. Uh, you know, how to file taxes. What does that mean? You know, you don't you don't really know, and it seems like magic. Get your first paycheck, and a quarter of it's gone. Mm-hmm. Let's dive in real quick to what it is that you thought was so important about saving. You know, not it wasn't just the company. It, it's what the company does. And the way I try to define it is you teach people that there are states of being and they come out very clearly when you're communicating. And you could be communicating to personal relationships, but we focus when we talk to you mostly about work relationships, internal and external customers, mm-hmm. and understanding there are ways that you're being perceived in your communication and there are ways that you're perceiving those you're talking to. And there is an ideal and optimal state for this communication pattern. And there are ways to get into that ideal state of communication and working to get to there while advancing the conversation is difficult. Mm -hmm. So how did you go about identifying these states of being, um, these ways of communicating and then developing this map of how to get through a, a complex situation, a complex conversation, where both people are coming out feeling like they accomplished something. It's a great question. So the concept itself, one of the main concepts that we use, comes from the world of psychology. So it's very practiced and, and learned in psychology. But like most things, call it from the uh, medical society, could be quite difficult to comprehend and not so practical. And one of the goals that has always remained within the organization, which is how do we take this complicated thing and make it simple? Because if it's simple, then I'm going to remember it in the moment. If I'm going to remember in the moment, then I'm going to be able to do it. And I will acknowledge that we have been blessed with the groups or the group of people that have participated in WITS as an organization when it comes down to the development of course content, materials, exercises, 
because like anything, there is a technique and a process to it. There's a technique and a process to course design and course evaluation. There's tools and techniques and skills when it comes down to understanding le adult learners, right? When it comes down to presenting, when it comes down to ensuring exercises are, are delivered. So, you know, like they say with most things, it takes 10,000 hours to become an expert. We've put in hundreds of thousands of hours into this and continue to do so. Um, the thing that I think we, that I check it up against the most is, does it work for me? Does it help me not get so reactive or be so pissed off in the moment? Did it help me express and communicate my concerns, my feelings, my perceptions in a way that landed for someone? Did it improve my relationship with the team member? Did the team member improve? Like, so we're using these tools and these concepts internally. In fact, we might argue that the group of wits is the ground zero. We are the case studies. And we are a little bit extreme in personality, so that also helps. But that's how we go about it. I think we go about it making sure that we want to create accessibility for people. You know, I'll say it another way. You know what the failure is with training in these courses and these books is we go and we read them, we understand them at a surface level, and we walk off and we think we're smarter. We don't change, we don't adjust, we don't implement, we don't do. We go, hmm, you know, I learned this theory today about situational leadership. There are four styles for me to use. Okay. Well, when do you use it? Well, when you've got someone not performing, you say this and you do that. It's not authentic. It's not real. It, 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 it doesn't actually promote any success. And we need to move away from that. I mean, part of what our job is as well um, as facilitators and coaches is to help people, what we might call suspend their disbelief. Right? So what's their disbelief? People walk into a program and they're like, well, another sales training program. Here's this guy, Greg, look at him, big personality, right? Probably, yeah, he's probably entertaining. I could listen to the guy for a few hours. And what our job is, is to actually go way beyond that, which is to get you guys to the stage going, whoa, hold on a second. This is, this is pretty deep. Wow, that's really relatable. Oh my gosh, I identified that. Holy, that just happened to me the other day. And if we can do that, if we can do that early, then we should be able to now get you to a place of really being able to, to learn what we have to share. I think a lot of time and a lot of effort and a lot of testing, and we might argue it's a little bit like your industry. Part of that program that uh, we went to, that's how, and that's how we met you, is you did coach us for a couple months and it's still ongoing even. But what we dove into uh, was a lot of psychology. And one of the things I found most interesting is how we perceive ourselves and how others perceive us. And for every person that I'm aware of, uh, we had a quite a gap in who we were internally and how people perceived us. What, what's the phenomena there? What, what's going on that everybody sees themselves one way, but they're actually perceived another way? What, what, what is the reason for that gap? What's happening there? I think there's, there's layers to that answer. Um, so I think the first layer is the type of parenting that we demonstrate today. We are inflating people's personality or inflating people all the time, right? I mean, just think about some individuals that you know today where you think, whew, were you given the wrong lessons in life? Were you told how fantastic you are when you're really not? So I think that, that, that it begins at home, right? 
you realize that all the guys just looked at me when you said that. <laughs> I, I appreciate that. <laughs> so that's one. Um, it's, it's interesting how the personality develops, but I'll, I'll come back to that later. I think the other side is as we now become move more into our adulthood, we're, we're also given a lot of societal pressures. Business and community say, listen, you should act this way, you should be this way. Right? Don't think this, don't, don't act that way. You know, it could be, it starts in, in our business lives. Look, I need you to be a little more collaborative and nicer. I need you to be a little more supportive. I need you to, I need you to chill out a little bit. I need you to not be so intense. I need you, right? Telling you everything that you shouldn't be, which by the way, doesn't work because all that does is reinforce the neurological connection of you doing it. So that, that messes people up. So now we end up with this kind of exercise in conscious behavior. So I'm turning it on for people. So think about this, the nurturing side of our personality. When do we use that the most? We use it the most with clients and with team members. Why? Because if we don't do that with clients, we're not getting business. And if we don't do it with team members, we're going to get in conflict. So therefore, all day I exert this nurturance. And what is nurturance? It's the ability to serve, to support, to give, to contribute, to collaborate, to help, right? Think about that. Client needs help. Team member needs help. Sure. Help, 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 help. So we do it and we do it all day. So the outside world sees us as very nurturing individuals. But what do we know about that? All of our ego states and all of these sides of our personalities can inflate and deflate. And if you've been exhausting that all day, you end up becoming deflated. So you get home and your significant other says, hey, can you help me? Oh, do me a favor. Leave me alone. I need 10 minutes. All day people have been asking me for things. Kids come up, hey, dad, can, can uh, five minutes from now, I'll do it in five minutes. So this is where we get an inside and an outside perspective to us. And one of the things we want to help people understand is both sets of uh, profiles are true. The way people are perceiving you is truth because you are demonstrating and acting and behaving in that way. And even though you might be turning it on, doesn't mean that that is not true. You are able to behave and act and communicate and show up in that way. What we get to see is the stuff that people don't get to see, right, by being deflated and all the energy. And the ones that do get to see it are of, of very close family members like spouses and children. So there will always be somewhat of a difference between my self-perception and others' perception. And what I might also do is tend to qualify my self-perception against others. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. It gives me a little bit of checks and balances, right? Which is, okay, if people are receiving this from me, what, what am I doing to contribute to that? I think the mistake people make with, this, with the type of profile and the assessment they do is they say, oh, oh, that's not me. I'm very different at home. No, you're the same, you know what, at home as you are at work. You just tend to work a little bit differently. You put in different effort at work than you do at home. But if you were to put in that same effort at home, that same emotional effort, that same energy that it takes you to manage your frustration with a client or be collaborative with someone that you don't really think highly of, but if you could do those, then we should be able to do it at home. And that's really the difference between self and others, which is more my inner thoughts that I get to see in here, which other people do not. But that version that people do hear, the version they do see, the difference that's in those scores, um, is that okay? Is that okay to show up and consider that as effort uh, that you're putting into your work? 
or you know, should we try to minimize that gap from the what we think and what we put on? Okay, to 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 answer the question directly, we need to minimize that gap. All right, it's not a healthy thing to have a massive delta between yourself and others. So one of the states of our personality is our reactive side. We call it the angry child. This is our sort of reactive, aggressive side. In fact, it's probably a side that also helps us succeed a little bit. But let's kind of use this example. My angry child and my reactive side to my personality, the value is very high. Let's say it's at a 55. And let's say other people see me at a 24. Now, this could be really unhealthy. Because what that would also acknowledge is the amount of internalization that I'm using to keep that bottled up, right? Now, with that kind of delta, that because that's just a ticking time bomb. It's a volcano waiting to pop. And this is where you see stories. You're like, God, Johnny came and they, 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 they threw something in the cafeteria or someone reacted in a meeting. What we know about these moments is it wasn't that, that thing that happened right then and there. It had been a buildup. Okay, so that's... One kind of problem. So now we get into the exercise of good. You're managing this externally really well, but you're doing it at the cost of yourself. You're doing too much damage on the inside. So we want to minimize that gap because it's unhealthy for you. Okay, let's go to the opposite. Let's go to something like more of the nurturing side to our personality, right? The one that we just described before. I see myself really high. Let's say the value is an 80 and other people see me at a 40. That's also a big kind of problem. You think you're warm and nice and encouraging and, and, and helpful for everyone, but people aren't receiving this from you. So you might be thinking and feeling you're doing this, but your qualification is the volume or the type of behavior that you think you're demonstrating to be nurturing isn't being received from other people. And that's when we start to look at this type of profile or this assessment as a tool of awareness, which is what do I need to be doing more of or less of, not could I, or could I, or should I, or would I? The exercise in me closing the gap between my self-profile and perception and others is one I want to be authentic to myself. And we might argue this. I'm not saying it's a good profile. You don't want to work with this person. But we would say it would be healthier for that person to be recognized as a 55 angry child reactive side, as well as a uh, uh, for them to recognize that there are 40. That would be way better because that would be someone saying, I really don't care and I'm apathetic. And people say, yes, they don't care and they're apathetic. And I've got a hot temper and it comes out, but I feel great when it comes out. And people say, yes, we see that temper and that frustration come out. Okay, cool. Now there's not so much work, right? And that's why I said it's a different kind of problem. So we got to start to think about this and one of the things that I, I, I want people to walk away with from our training, our coaching, the work we do, is a deep insight on where this stuff comes from. Why do I react and feel the way I do? Because the more I can start to reflect, the more insight I'm going to gain on that. The more insight I'm going to get, the more ability I'm going to be able to shift my approach and then change that type of behavior. And the tool itself is to give people a starting point, not an ending point. All right, this is where we're sitting currently. It's kind of like going to a physical trainer and they, they stick you in the scale and, and they test your, your body fat and, you know, all that kind of stuff. What you don't do is you don't go, well, I'm not, I'm not up for the training anymore. You say, cool, I know where I am and where I'm trying to go. And it is the individual self goals that become more important than, than, than what we describe for them. Greg, could a justification of those gaps that you were talking about, how others perceive us versus how we see ourselves, uh, 
I guess to give folks a little bit of a background on what I'm referring to or what we're referring to, before we started the training with you, you had us send out surveys to four other individuals so they could, you know, fill fill those out. And for instance, the four people I sent uh, my surveys to were to Paul and Josh, you know, because we work together and we talk to each other every day. Mm-hmm. I sent one to my best friend that I've known since first grade, and I sent one to my wife, and they all filled them out. And uh, there were, I can't remember which one, but there were one or two of those areas where there was a gap. And I was wondering, like, could that be because maybe I'm not going to act the same way towards Paul and Josh as I do to my wife, you know, for instance, Josh, Paul, I wouldn't treat y'all that bad. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But, uh, but I guess what I'm getting at is, you know, Paul and Josh probably see me as a certain way or, you know, Paul probably sees me differently from Josh because I've known Paul, you know, for much, much longer. And then my best friend sees me differently. My wife sees me differently. And then you go on down the line, you know, you got customers, you got coworkers and you got Mm -hmm. anybody else that you interact with. Um, could those gaps and those scores all be kind of justified uh, with something like that? Correct. That's a lot of it. You know, for us to 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 describe people, it's it's quite easy to do so because it's 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 instant what we've received. What does Joey say? What are the words he uses? What's the volume he uses? Right. So, if someone came to me and said, "Hey, listen, you know, tell me, do you think Joey is an aggressive guy?" I'd say, well, I don't think he's an aggressive guy. In my experience with him, he doesn't yell a lot, doesn't throw things, doesn't threaten, doesn't attack, doesn't you know go from zero to hero in a second. Like he seems to be pretty. In fact, Paul and Josh are nodding your heads. You're like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right now, what you don't see him doing is smashing the microphone and all that kind of stuff. But if you did, if you did, you would be like, ah, yes. So I see, I see Joey doing that. Now, let me ask you this question because I'm coming back to answer your question, Joey which I think you were saying, well, if Josh and Paul see me in one way, can that affect the whole assessment if my wife sees me in a little bit of a different way? Right? So let me go there for a second. The truth to it is you will act the same way in front of Paul and Josh as you would in front of your wife because you're close with these guys. There's not so much censorship. Now, if we went to complete strangers right, and people like your boss, we might get a variance in feedback, but not a lot, but we would get a variance. But Paul, Josh, your wife, your best friend has seen you act and behave in many different areas of your life where they can give you a consistent feedback. When you started to go down a path about how you developed that personality in the first Mm -hmm. place, um, I'd love to hear your thoughts on how we get to those stages, whether it's what we're internalizing or what people are experiencing. Mm -hmm. How, How do we get to there? Cool. So let's start with there. There's two thoughts for personality. One, your personality is fixed. This is who you are. And this is this is what your blueprint is. And there's that's it. It might expand a little bit and shrink a little bit. That is who you are. And the second one is your personality is fluid and is continually developing, but it's developing as per a specific call it skeleton framework. So this is where we get into the world of nature and nurture, right? So we've all heard of nature and nurture. Nature being the descriptor of your personality, which is, this is your characteristics, what you look like, sound like, how you behave. And nurture is the environment you were raised in, the experiences that you had, 
the parenting that you receive, the friendships that you have. It's not just your parents. It's extended family, it's friends, it's teachers, it's all that kind of stuff, right? And one of the things that we know is within your formative years, your personality is developed. And your personality is developed, which has a lot to do with your genetic profile. Like we are born, there's the, there's the nature, we are born a genetic profile from our parents. Now, depending on the environment and how we were raised, the nurture determines how we develop to that blueprint. If we're nurtured properly, we develop properly. If we nurture badly, we develop badly. Very simple example. I am a reactive, aggressive type of personality. We call it an angry child. My father was the same. His father was the same. And myself, my father, his father were all raised by the same type of father. Very dominant and aggressive men. So... We learned that when you need to drive through or you need to push, aggressive, dominant behavior is the way to them. And it hit me like a ton of bricks. I have a son. He's five years old. He's got that same little genetic angry child in him. And this doesn't mean I do it well all the time, but I am hyper-conscious of reacting differently to him when he's, when he's in that mode. And that's instead of me being dominant, I need to be nurturing and forgiving and patience. So if we can do that in the environment and we nurture, then hopefully he develops a little more properly. He develops a little better with that angry child. Okay. So this is the experience that takes us to about six years old. I think between the ages of seven to 12, I could be wrong on this, but what we now do is we take our personality and we go outside of the world, the, the, your immediate family. So now you're getting into school, friends. Friends is a big thing. You're getting into your tween years, that sort of young teenager. And now what we're doing is our personality is being sort of tested and checked against those, those environments, that social environment now. In a lot of cases, maybe but to what we talked about before, we become a little more conscious right now, Joey. Like, oh, I want to be liked. I want to be friends with these people. Let me, let me act this way, even though I don't really feel that way. So now we sort of develop that side of our personality, which is how does it fit within the social world outside of our immediate family? And the theory now, the fluid theory says that as we grow, our personality continually evolves, continually develops, continually experiences. And it's what we do with those things. So we know the fact that our personality has the most profound development in our formative years. But what I believe is that we can consciously, quotations, change who we are. I can learn to feel differently. I can learn to process emotion differently. I, I can grow. I can evolve my personality. And that's what my job becomes in my adult life. No, you can actually, absolutely change who you are. Because you can change what you eat. You can change how you treat your own body. You can change how you treat others around you. You can change the way you treat money. Mm -hmm. There's so many things you can change that can help you evolve. You can absolutely change yourself. But I think anybody that's had children will tell you that nature absolutely has a component to this. And my daughter came out of the box who she is just sweet, happy, nice, that was out of the box, genetic, boom, there she is. And then I did my very best to say and communicate to her very clearly, uh, I have two things I'm trying to do for you, and that is to teach you that if you be nice and work hard, you can accomplish almost anything. Whatever you're doing, whoever you're doing it with, 
be nice, work mm-hmm. hard. And so uh, the second tenet to that is to always tell the truth or at least don't lie. Mm-hmm. And so she goes out into the world. She's in kindergarten. She's six years old. And all these little boys are lying and, and calling people names and being mean. And she comes home. She doesn't understand. She says, Dad, why would he lie? That's rule number two, Dad. <laughs> he said, don't lie. Why would he right. do that? And it, it's it's like almost unfathomable to her. Like, why would anybody behave in a way that others wouldn't like? Right. So there's so much of a component that is absolutely nature. Right. But let's, let's go there for a sec. You know, part of your daughter's position, if she does have that very strong natural nurturing side, our job as parents isn't to to negate that we want to reinforce it which is exactly what you've done like let's keep that a strength but let's also work this muscle with the dominant the assertiveness side right the ability to set boundaries and, uh, and and say no right and this is where it becomes really important that we understand that our personality has six aspects to it there's six sides to our personality which contributes to our behavior our thinking and our feelings and we need to be working each of these things we need to be consciously inflating deflating working practicing not at the expense of others for example your daughter's nurturance in alignment and support and balance of that yeah i'm very thankful she's a strong-willed person even as a child so when she came to me and recently was crying about can't understand why this kid's lying and she's gonna get in trouble at recess because he's lying he's the one doing the bad thing but he's saying i'm doing the bad thing he's a liar i said well you know you gotta stand up for yourself and the way you do that is you walk away from these people and you don't play with them and try and get your friend group not to play with them. And, and just, you just have to stand up for yourself. Mm-hmm. And she came home the next day. She said, dad, I told him, I told him my dad said that I'm not supposed to play with that little boy. Can we go move our game? And they said, no, you know, why are you trying to exclude him? You know, that, that's not a nice thing to do. And she said, okay, well, my dad said I shouldn't play with him. I should stand up for myself. And she went and played a different game for her. And that is so hard to do. So when she came home to me and told me that story and was sad about it, and I did everything in my power to tell her, no, you should be proud of yourself and you should be happy. I know it hurts, but mm-hmm. there are grownups out there that can't stand up for themselves when people aren't treating them right. And you were able to do that as a kindergartner, you know, keep it up. Well, that, that got me thinking. I mean, we've been talking a lot so far about how to um, how to determine attributes within yourself and, and kind of self-evaluate. But another key component to proper communication and successful communication that is so important in our industry is being able to relate to and identify qualities in other people and oftentimes on the fly. You know, there's a couple of times Greg talked about, you know, the angry child. Uh, people who are, you know, assertive and you know, quick to react. We get a lot of that on a job site. Not so much nurturing parents mm-hmm. on <laughs> on a job site. Way more angry child. Um, but you know, as, as important as it is to identify your own strengths and weaknesses, it's as important, or maybe even more. We'll let Greg chime in to be able to identify those attributes in other people uh, in order to achieve something whatever it may be well i think not only what i took from greg's training was not only to identify that but then move them to a better state yeah and the better state is the one we haven't mentioned here today is that is the adult state the ideal communication is one adult 
talking to another adult. And it's interesting, Greg, after you taught us all this, it was so interesting to see people who were in that adult state. And I would realize that I was the one not in the adult state. It almost makes you feel bad. Right. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh man, I need to bring myself back to the adult right. state here. And so, so tell us, Greg, uh, when you're identifying that and you're trying to bring people in, are you, what, what are you looking to do? That's a great question. I think we got a simple answer for it and we'll, 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 we'll take off from, from Josh. So, you know, Josh, you're saying like it's as equally important to recognize these attributes and others. And yes, the reason for that, and it's Paul, what you answered is because it gives me an answer to what I should do next. At the end of the day, one of the things that, you know, we're describing here for the audience when we use words like parent and child and adult, we're not actually describing like position where someone's married or has children. We're describing the different aspects of the personality and we've named them a parental state, an adult state and a child state, which have their own subcategories. But the reason we want to understand this is for a few reasons. Number one, who am I? Right? Which, which is the side, the state of my personality that's showing up right now? Second, why is it showing up? Because a lot of who, who or why it shows up is because of what you just said, Josh, who sits in front of me? Ah, I've got this aggressive, reactive, sort of, you know, angry child type of personality sitting in front of me. All right. Now what I got to start to think about is who do I need to be? Which, Josh, you're talking about, okay, in order for me to navigate this personality right now, the best thing for me to do is to move them into that adult state. Because... Until that happens, anything that we interact with is going to be useless because it's all built on emotion and reaction right now. And we see this in police and we see this in, in, in healthcare, de-escalation, right? Before we can talk about the incident or before we can help you, we need to get ourselves to a calmer state of mind. That's the exact same thing on a construction site, right? Someone's not following a safety process. Right? Site super runs over. Why the F? Blah, 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 blah. Right? Now, what is the intention of that person? Why are they yelling and screaming? Well, answer number one, it's part of who they are as a personality. Part of that answer is they don't know how to do it differently. They don't know how to communicate it differently. So they do what they've always done, which is turn into a flame ball. But why? If I was to ask you, do you think the site super, uh, super, uh, supervisor cares? Do you think what's important to them, some of their values are quality of work, excellence, safety, right? Making sure everyone goes home. That's why the person's reacting, not because of you. And when we understand this and I can start to look at it like that to go, ah, site super just came and read me out right now for those reasons. But what I'm going to do now is I'm going to respond a little differently. And what happens with the site super is they de-escalate, they deflate, they come down. And you know one of the greatest things we start to do is we start to teach people how to communicate better and more effectively with us, not because of the Jedi mind trick that we try to pull, but because of how I respond, because of how I communicate, because of how I show up. And it is through role modeling that behavior that next time I might put myself in a position where that site super comes up to me and says, Hey, by the way, I noticed you weren't following the safety process. What's up? Instead of so quickly launching. And if you really want to hear a mind effer, why would the site super react this way in the beginning? I could almost guarantee because once upon a time, they had an experience that was so jeopardizing to uh, them or the success or the project or to another individual. They were threatened emotionally 
And that remained as an emotional marker for them. So the second there's a potential safety challenge or disagreement or not following the process in the future, this individual's mind is reverted right back to that original memory with that emotional marker, which is happening at a very subconscious level, which is you will die if you don't follow this, right? And I've done a lot of work, so have you guys, in industrial uh, sector and, and throughout my career, it has happened half a dozen times where I've had a client come to me say, we've just lost someone today. There was an accident in the factory, in, on the work site, et cetera, et cetera. And I try to remind people of this, which is the one thing we haven't learned how to do very well is communicate. What we've learned how to do very quickly is react in the moment. And our job is to get back to some of that very important communication skills, which is what you were talking about before, understanding comfort and making sure that if I do have to come and talk to you about the, 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 the safety process, or completing the task, or measuring twice and cutting once, or anything along those lines, we can do so by going, all right, I know who I am, which is I want to kill this person right now. Let me manage that. Usa, breathe that one out. Okay, got myself to the adult. Ah, who sits in front of me? I got Joey. Joey's whimsical and free and chilled and relaxed and, you know, doesn't always think through situations. Not a bad guy. That's his natural child, spontaneous child state. Adds a lot to him. But I need him being the adult to have this conversation. Cool. All right? And I'm doing this because the objective is to make sure that we're able to be consistent in following the process. It sounds like this. Joey, I wanted to check in with you. Notice you weren't following the uh, process today. What happened? Any reason for that? Like, do you understand? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, just we, we need to make a quick decision. Okay, look, you know, we understand how important this is. Yep, great. Moving forward. Are we committed to this? Yes. This is how we discuss things as adults. What I do to a child is I come and I say, listen, I've told you once and there are, there are consequences if you don't do this. All right, if I catch you again, you're going to get in trouble. All right, add in a few choice words in there with an elevated vo tone of voice. Welcome to site supervision. Normally, we've seen the safety guys roll up. Everybody, you know, puts their heart eyes back on. No, <laughs> right. They do radio sometimes. But, hey, safety guys here. So <laughs> do anything you're not supposed right, to do. Right. Never the hard hat, though. Nobody takes yeah. that off there. Well, and not all safety guys are created equal, but I will acknowledge the fact that they have one of the hardest jobs there is, and that is enforcing rules to adults. Correct. Like it, it's tough to tell a guy that's been in an industry for 30 plus years how to do his job when you haven't done his job, not to that extent anyway. Yeah. Um, you know, that, that's, a, that's a tough job to communicate that. But what Greg has taught me specifically through the course is the power in the question. Like, like in his example, he communicates with questions. And I think that like disarms whoever right. it is you're talking to very effectively. Right. You know, you just nailed something there. I'll just paraphrase. You get this individual that's been given a job called safety supervisor, right? Their entire job is to ensure people are following the safety pro protocols. Their job is not to discipline people not to enforce people, not to criticize people, not to police people. And if this safety su uh, supervisor or individual is not careful, they end up falling into that role. I'm here to police you. 
Now, I'm a pretty rebellious personality. If you rolled up to me and told me to do anything and I felt that it was in some sort of policing, authoritative, sort of controlling way, there's a few choice words that I would respond with, right? And I would naturally resist instantly. That's just my personality. You tell me what to do or tell me I shouldn't do something, I will double down and go and do it. In fact, if you give me an A or B option, I will take C every single time. It might it completely messes people <laughs> up. You know what I, mean? I was like, all right, fine. We'll just shut it all down then. They're like, well, no, what do you mean? That's not an option, right? But if you came to me and you said, listen, Greg, um, can I ask you a question? What if you said this to me? You've been here for 30 years. Would you agree that the things that you do is a massive influencer to some of the younger guys here, right? And would you also agree that some of these younger guys haven't had maybe as much experience with you, so while you're able to do this, is it more dangerous for these guys to be doing this? Well, yeah. So one of the things I want to ask is if you could help me mentor and teach these guys, and one of the greatest ways we can do so is by showing them the importance of this. Now, this is not to say that that individual goes, thank you very much for communicating so well. I changed the way I will now approach things. But I would almost guarantee if you said, listen, you, 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 got, you got to take a bet. Which one do you think is going to work better than the other? I'm going to take the latter. right? Because I've seen this all the time, it's very specifically in manufacturing, is I get called and I go to work with groups and they say, there's a, there's a guy by the name of Bill in the room. Bill's been here for 30 years. He's close to retirement. He's been very difficult. He's a critical parent, right? Don't get hooked by him. People don't like him. He's very aggressive. And they build this guy up to be this monster, right? We move in the room, and that's where this happens every single time. It is Bill that comes out of the program the most changed and the most motivated. And it is Bill that says, I wish I learned this 30 years ago. Because what I've had to do along the way is fight. And this is a way where we don't have to fight with people. And it's amazing because the businesses will come back and be like, I don't think you can change Bill. And I often want to reply to people, which I don't because it's going to mess up my sale. I say, of course, it's all program. That's what we do around here. But what I do want to say to them, I say, Bill, Bill didn't need to change. This is Bill. This is the same Bill for the last 30 years. You've just been interacting with one of Bill's ego states because that's how you speak to him. But if you were to speak to him differently, you would have seen the different aspects of his personality. And if we promoted that, we would have seen more of that behavior coming from Bill. So it's the company's leader's fault, not Bill. Well said. And going through the program, and one thing I would like to hammer home to our audience here who is listening on a concrete podcast, um, the famous saying is you don't know what you don't know, right? I mean, a lot of these concepts and these states and uh, how we talked about self-evaluation, a lot of that really seems elementary, but people just don't do it. They're just not aware of these concepts. They don't practice, um, you know, some of the, some of the exercises and routines that you, that you go through throughout the program. And it's not until you do that to where you kind of come to that epiphany moment. And if you're able to, to harness, you know, what you can learn through the program and, and really apply it, I mean, it, it really does make a huge difference in day-to-day -day communication Correct. for sure. But you're not aware of that until it's presented to you in such a way. Correct. You know, what's that saying? There's a wonderful saying. Life will give you lessons for you to learn. If you do not learn the lesson the first time, life will give you that lesson over and over again. Right? I think that's how I kept ending up in 
failing relationships with yeah. crazy <laughs> women. Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll share this. I'll never forget this. Is years ago. This is before I was married. I ended up breaking up with uh, a girlfriend at the time, uh, meeting a new girlfriend and a colleague of mine. My girlfriend at the time came by the office, and I'll never forget this. It was like yesterday. She looked, she's like, you know, Greg, all your girlfriends look the same. I said, what? She was like, yeah, they all look the same, sound the same, act the same. I was like, you've just hit the nail on the head. This is why they're all ex-girlfriends. I'm dating the wrong type of person, right? You needed that epiphany and you needed that sort of awareness to come out. Yeah. yeah. Nobody ever told me, I guess. Joey, I would have appreciated if you'd have come to me and uh, straightened me out sooner. You had to learn on your own. Sorry. To to the <laughs> audience out there, and I know it's a concrete show and stuff, and uh, once again, I made a joke in the beginning of the show saying, look, I'd love to come and talk with you guys. I love what you guys are doing. I love the fact that you guys are, are creating content for, for an industry that um, is very traditional, and, and you know, there's so much exciting things happening. But to what you were just saying, Josh, I think what's so important, and hopefully what some of the audience uh, that have been listening to this have taken from it is the ability for us to change. It's not hard. It's a little bit of work. It's okay for us to have a little bit of a different perspective to my personality from others. But my job is to sort of close that gap. And the importance of, of being able to continually grow and learn regardless of the industries that we're in. Right? I'm a high school dropout. I, I was not formally educated. I, I failed academically. And I failed academically because I also ADD and had a very difficult time learning. But what my adult life has shown me and has given me is that I was just in the wrong learning environment. I was in an environment that did not work for me. But that didn't mean I couldn't learn. And that didn't mean that I couldn't grow. Uh, and what that did mean was me taking responsibility for learning. And the things that I've spent my adult life learning a lot is self-awareness and emotional intelligence and communication skills. And I see the relevance and the importance today as a father more than I ever did, as a husband more than I ever did, right? Why do you think we have 76% divorce ratio? What happened? What happened? Where, why were all these people? And by the way, where are all these single people? How come, how come I can't find any of them? 76% of them are all out single right now, right? <laughs> so, but as a husband, as a, and more importantly, as a boss, as an entrepreneur, because, you know, as an entrepreneur, it is extremely stressful having to think about and be, be strong enough as a business to look after people's well-being, to pay their salaries, to, to provide a place to work. It's a, it's a lot of pressure. And you sometimes, as a reactive personality, want to blame, fight, attack circumstances that affect our businesses, i.e. the pandemic, right? And that's who I am as a personality. I'm a fighter. I want to blame. I want to attack. But I recognize this and the growth that I've gone through is going, okay, I get to feel this way. But what I also get to do is manage it because if I don't, it's not going to serve for what we're trying to achieve. And in this particular case, we want to serve well as a business and we want to serve well as a team. And that's going to be what's going to be required is really important connected relationships built on uh, a foundation of trust and effective communication. Well, if I, if I can speak for the entire group here, I feel like your company has done very well in, in serving that, that sector and, and giving a lot of benefit to a lot of people out there. So. Uh, we certainly appreciate your time and appreciate the chance to talk to you about something that would that would be classified as pretty unique for this particular podcast. But we like to be well-rounded around here, so we 
we appreciate uh, appreciate your words of, of knowledge and wisdom. Um, for the audience out there, you know, if they have any questions for you, what's the best way to reach you? Yeah. Um, okay. So anywhere on social media, if you search Greg Witz, G-R-E-G-W-I-T-Z, I will pop up. If you're on Instagram, if you're on LinkedIn, Facebook, great places to connect uh, as well. My email, super simple, Greg, G-R-E-G, at witseducation.com. Email me anytime. Um, you could also go to the website, witseducation.com, W-I-T-Z, education.com. You can connect with us there. I think uh, there's a, even my cell phone number is there. So yeah, anytime anyone has questions or wants to learn more about anything or even wants to just drop a message to say hello, that'd be amazing and um, awesome, yeah. Yeah, thank you, Greg. This is great. Appreciate you. Okay, thanks again to Greg. We really appreciated and enjoyed that interview, and we hope you did the same. Be sure to look him up on social media, and while you're at it, visit our pages as well. At 10 Gallons Concrete Podcast can be found on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Also, wherever you get your podcasts, give us a rating, a review, tell a friend about us. We love seeing those listener and subscriber numbers grow over time. And really appreciate that uh, we got some people out there that, that like the content that we put out. Be on the lookout for our next interview here in about a few weeks. And until then, y'all be good. <laughs>